The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Help! I need somebody. Help! Not just anybody. Help! You know I need someone. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. I'm a physician. I was trained in Britain, and I'm sure you can tell that from my accent. I've worked for many years in Canada and also with various colleagues in the U.S. I'm retired from practice, but I'm still working in healthcare research and development. I see family caregiving as one of the most important supports for healthcare right across the world right now. Independence of culture, independence of place, it's a profound, profoundly important matter. Now, family caregivers are the people who provide care to family members suffering health challenges. And the fact is that the healthcare systems of so many countries rely on the unpaid help of family caregivers. And here, if it isn't obvious already, I'm going to confess, I'm an activist for family caregiving, which explains the name of the show, Family Caregivers Unite. Now, our topic for today is family caregiving in immigrant families. As everybody knows, all family caregivers face challenges because family caregiving is demanding work. What we're going to be talking about today are the special challenges to family caregivers in immigrant families, how these challenges are met or not met, as the case may be, and what help is needed in meeting them. Our two guests are two people who are very experienced in this field and have considerable expertise. Uh, first is Dr. Joan Lesmond, and second is Dr. Is Donna Shemp, who um, I'm going to introduce first because she, her experience is representing the picture in the in the U.S. She's a program director at Family Caregiver Alliance. National Center on Caregiving in the U.S. This is a non-profit organization based in San Francisco, and among many things, it helps family caregivers to get respite and support for their caregiving roles with conditions such as Alzheimer's disease and with frail elders. She's involved in San Francisco's End of Life Network. She has experience as a medical social worker in hospice and home care, and her experience prior to joining uh, Family Caregiver Alliance includes work with Kaiser, the big organization, to increase the use of community organizations by Kaiser's patients. She's been senior case manager at Jewish Family and Children's Services of the East Bay. 
She's past president of the Board of Directors of Planning for Elders in the City Center in San Francisco and past chair of the Ethics Committee at the Center for Elder Independence in Oakland. Now, Joan Lesmond, um, she's speaking uh, from Canada. She's the executive director of community engagement and St. Elizabeth Healthcare. This is a non-profit charitable organization that's been delivering healthcare in the home and community sectors for over 100 years. She's also executive director, St. Elizabeth Healthcare Foundation. She, she teaches at Ryerson Polytechnic University in the Bachelor of Science program for nursing students in community health. She's a board member of the Ontario Community Support Association, the Ontario Hospice Association, Women's College Hospital, the Association of Ontario Health Centers, and an organization called Health Force Ontario. She was previously Chief Nursing Executive and Director of Professional Practice at Casey House Hospice in Toronto. She's past president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario, past president of its International Nurses Interest Group, past president of Regent Park Community Health Centre, and past board member of the Canadian Nurses Protective Society. So, as I said before, two people with very considerable expertise. So, welcome to the show, Joan and Donna. Thank now, you, Gordon. Thank you. Thank you, Gordon. Now, I'm going to start by asking us a key question, and it's this. What do we really mean, both of you, by immigrant family caregivers, first off in the U.S. and then in Canada? So, Donna, what do we mean by immigrant family caregiver? Well, immigrant family caregivers in the U.S., what we generally think of is often families who have brought an elderly, yes, a adult child who's brought an elderly parent around um, to America and after they've been settled here. They may be caring for someone who may or may not be documented. They may or not be able to access benefits in the United States. They may or may not be able to speak English. Um, so we have a complex situation, all, mainly due to our medical system. Okay. Joan. What's the picture of the immigrant family caregiver in Canada? I think it's really some of what Donna has said. But what we really like to do in Canada to look at the overall definition of a caregiver. And we see caregivers as individuals who provide care and assistance to family members and friends who are in need of support because of physical, cognitive, or mental health conditions. What we also see, and there are some of the challenges, like Donna said, it would be maybe a language barrier. It could be an elderly parent. It could be someone who is handicapped. But I remember a quote from a previous presentation where they said there are only four types of people in the world, those who have been caregivers, those who are caregivers, and those who will be caregivers, and those who need care. So based on that, when we focus on immigrant caregivers, we look at individuals who care for each other, be it culture, be it religion, be it education, in many different ways. What also guides us is that 58% of family caregivers suffer from poor physical health and emotional health 
irrespective of whether they're an immigrant, whether they're documented or undocumented. And 55% of employed family caregivers report that they do have issues at work because of a caregiving situation. So more broadly defined then, we honor the human face of healthcare, which is really our mission and vision at Senelis. So therefore, whether it's an immigrant or a landed individual, we give them the support they need based on the care that they need. I'm going to ask you, Joan, um, just to expand a little bit on this, and then I'm going to put the same question to Donna. Joan, um, what's the typical picture of a family caregiver in an immigrant family? Who are, who they, who are they, um, and who are they really providing care for? I think most of them are women. Seven out of ten caregivers are women. And about quite a few of them have personally cared for a family member or close friends with a serious health problem. And they're also caring sometimes for children who may be handicapped or who may have other challenges. So when we look at a caregiver, sometimes we also have to look at the cultural um, expectations because sometimes because of cultural expectation, it is really expected that one cares for each other. And I think sometimes that's even a greater challenge because if you are living in North America, then in that case, expectations may be very, very different. Yeah. Donna, how does that, how do you, how do you see that typical picture? And who is it? Who's providing the care? And how closely is what um, you're going to describe fit with what Joan has just described? Well, it's it's very very similar to what Joan has said. Um, you know, in America, <clears throat> what we have is, um, you know, due to the immigration laws, um, the people who are here um, have often, again, I, as I said earlier, have often brought their elderly parents here. Then they have, and when they do that, they make an agreement that they will take care of all of their needs and expenses, including medical care. So they may qualify for emergency services, but not any kind of ongoing care, such as medical care or any of the other extended resources like daycare that may be available to others but wouldn't be available to them. Um, often, you know, immigrant families are struggling to work usually in low-income jobs, and also care for someone at home. Um, A recent case we had was a Peruvian family who was documented perfectly legal, brought mother here, mother was fine, but mother now has dementia. And because she has to work, she has to leave her mother at home alone during the day, or she has her teenage kids um, have to help take care of mother when, um, when she has to work. And then the children are missing school as a result. Um, you know, or another case we had was a young stroke survivor who was undocumented, and so his wife can't leave him alone because he has a head injury. And so now she can't work, but she also doesn't qualify for Medicaid or other services that are due to um, them being undocumented. So the things, you know, come up here a lot because we don't have a medical system that will support people or a network of services that will support people. And you do have, you know, 
how much extended family, whether an immigrant family is isolated here or whether they have other family or other um, support through their cultural community, does make a big difference. Yeah, that's a very key point. Would you just like to say a little bit more about the, the conditions that the family caregivers are supporting? You mentioned a couple, but can you generalize and say which is the most common, for example? Well, I mean, the immigrant family may be providing everything from a place to live, providing food, clothing, medical care, financial support, 24-hour on-hands care, bathing, grooming, transferring, toileting, translating, you know, everything, you know, depending on what kind of illnesses or disabilities they're dealing with. One of the big issues is often that either adult children or, or grandchildren may have to be the translators. Yeah. So they may have to be talking about, you know, basically adult issues as children or learning adult issues in terms of having to translate about things that's not appropriate for them to do. Right, right. Perfectly fair. Now, we are going to take a short break, and um, we will be back after the break. Um, I want to say um, once more, this is Family Caregivers Unite. We're talking about the special challenges for immigrant family caregivers in the two countries, the USA and Canada, and our two guests are Joan Lesmond and Donna Schimp. Um, we will be back to you shortly, and please, as they say in show business, stay tuned. Thank you. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at my. M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Joan Lesmond and Donna Shemp. Our topic is family caregiving in immigrant communities. Now, I'm going to go uh, to Donna first. Um, we're talking about the types of care that immigrant family caregivers provide and what it involves. And also the question of cultural factors. So, Donna, would you like to put those those things together and and say how you see things? Yeah, um, and and you know, as I said over and over again, in the U.S., the biggest challenge is access to health care. But on top of that, there is the not understanding our medical system, and often providers don't understand how families integrate and accept traditional healing practices with Western medicine so that they can understand what is going on. What Western medical practitioners often do is to see someone as non-compliant because they're using acupuncture or herbs or curanderos, and also because there may be a lack of understanding of some kinds of illnesses like dementia or mental health issues, because culturally those things are seen as crazy or embarrassing. The other thing culturally is gender roles are generally more strictly defined, so the caregivers are even more likely female, but their roles are even more strictly defined. 
We have a Chinese caregiver who gets a break sometimes from her brother, but it's hardly help because when he gets there, all he does is eat the food that she's required to cook for him and won't do any hands-on care. Mm. Yeah. Joan, let's talk about the Canadian situation. How closely um, does it resemble what Donna's been talking about, uh, the kind of care that immigrant family caregivers provide, the, the cultural factors, language factors, and things like that? I, I think what is important to note, do that caring for individuals is very, very challenging, even if you are landed within a, a system. But in an immigrant situation with who is non-documented or waiting for landing, it's even more difficult because the challenge is individuals are totally unaware of the system. They're unaware of the services. They're unaware of the linkages. And in some different cultural groups, it takes time to build the trust of the traditional healthcare system and also to recognize what other aspects of care from a cultural basis that the immigrant family is familiar with. What I think is really also important to note, though, we have the factor where there is an immigrant family and they're being taken care of by someone who has lived in Canada for a long time. But again, if that individual has to work, it's complicated with the family member who may be the care recipient being alone at home, not being able to speak the language, not being familiar with the different seasons like spring, summer, winter, or fall, and therefore it, it causes an added stress for the caregiver, not only caring for the immigrant family member, but overall, not only within the home situation, but also within the work situation. It's like that person is between two systems where and, and caring never stops because the expectation of functioning effectively at work is there and the expectation of caring effectively at home for an immigrant family is also there. So it's really important that we are aware of the complexities in a home environment to ensure the supports are there for individuals who really, really need it. Right. The word challenge is right, isn't it? That is, these really are challenges, and they are complicated by the kind of factors you've been talking about. Now, I'm going to ask you to see if you can identify, both of you, what you would regard as the top three challenges, and why are they the top three? And we're talking always about immigrant family caregivers, though I respect the point that uh, there's a lot of commonality between those who of us have been here a long time and those are of us who relatively uh, new arrivals. Joan first. I believe um, one key challenge is really the lack of knowledge of available community resources and services. That is a big, big challenge. And again, navigating the system is also very difficult because in Canada we do have the OHIP system, but again, that if someone is, you know, not landed yet, that person is not covered through that system. So therefore, it behooves us to look at what type of support is available to help, again, the individual cope effectively. There's also a financial challenge because sometimes it could have really negative impact. 
let's say it's only one family member working and the immigrant family has to be taken care of and does not qualify for services, that is also a challenge. There's also then the physical, the psychological, the social and financial risk assumed then by the family and friends who are providing care for the individual, for the immigrant family, and that could also be very, very difficult. So as we talked about, usually these individuals have not worked within the system or are waiting to be processed thoroughly to give them access to work. And if they're sick at that time, too, and because of cultural um, bringing up or religion, you know, we're told we need to care for each other. So being able to, again, look at the challenge of not being able to have the enough um, facilities or enough to support the individual who definitely needs the care. And I think, you know, lack of integrated, um, range of integrated services, you know, sometimes the services are available, but if it's an immigrant family, to be able to help to work with different immigrant groups to say, okay, how can we help that individual cope effectively at home? And again, it behooves us to look at systems and to work with different groups culturally and also traditionally to see how we can help that individual. One thing to also keep in mind with those challenges, though, if if the immigrant family is not supported, it also puts other other family members at risk. Could be caregiver burden. It could be possibly loss of job because having a, a, a high sick time because of being totally exhausted. And also the the immigrant family who is also receiving the care totally frustrated because, again, they're in a totally different environment. Yeah, no friends, nothing. Yeah. Donna, what, what, what's the picture? Well, what's I would your absolutely echo, echo absolutely everything that Joan said. Um, I would you know, add to that that you know, even even for non-immigrant families, <clears throat> for most people who are caring for a family member, there's the whole issue of self-identifying as a caregiver. And, you know, if you're just do, this is just what we do. This is just what I do. I'm taking care of my mother, and I don't call myself a caregiver. I don't know that there are um, services out there for me. And the immigrant family in particular is, is often not going to, identify as a caregiver because they, again, that's just what they're seeing. And so they don't know what's out there. As a result, they tend to either wait too long to find out what's available or what help might be there, or they, you know, they end up in crisis because they haven't been able to get any kind of preventive care and, you know, back to burnout and some of those issues, which is also related to them feeling isolated or being isolated because they are... Um, don't necessarily have a community here where <clears throat> they can get that kind of support. And the other struggle, which Joan mentioned, which is the struggle of often working in jobs that they have to either work two jobs just to make ends meet, or they're working uh, low-income jobs and having to to struggle and juggle many, many more things right. just to get by. Right. Now, I'm just going to ask you both a brief question, and it's only brief because um, we have limited time. What do your organizations do? Donna first. 
with all these things you've been talking about with the, the challenges, what support do you provide as an organization? Well, and I, I think the first thing, before I answer that, the other thing you have to say is that we need to get the word out to people, and we need to get the word out in culturally and, and linguistically appropriate ways that there are things available. Uh, what we have on our website is what's called the Family Care Navigator, which is a map of the United States where someone can you know, put in a zip code and find out what services are available in a given area in the United States. And I think that's probably the most important thing that we do. We have fact sheets that are in English and Chinese and Spanish that can give people information about diseases and caregiving and caregiving issues so that there may be a way to get some more information than they have otherwise. Um, and then what we tend to do is to try to keep the issue of caregiving in the forefront in all conversations. Joan, what, what's your sense of this? I think what we do as an organization, St. Elizabeth Healthcare Foundation, has raises funds and through charitable donations, we have created what we call a caregiver support program since 97. The services include the free respite or relief care. There's also free training and education sessions for the family members, and there's also free instructional resources. Now, we do have criteria for service. For example, the caregiver has access all available government-sponsored services, and if they do no longer have services, that's when they can access foundation funding to give caregiver support. They're also unable to self-pay for services without incurring significant financial burden, and they agree to a means test, and they also agree to participate in an evaluation. And it's really interesting to say, Gordon, that this program, which is delivered through St. Elizabeth Healthcare and ElderSafe across Ontario, and I know similarly there are caregiving programs across Canada. St. Elizabeth also is delivering the same caregiver support service to Victoria in British Columbia, and we're hoping to, again, support individuals where it is needed. There are many benefits to that program, such as the relief from some of the daily pressures that family caregivers face. We yep. also train them in the delivery of vital home health care. Sure. Joan, I'm going to interrupt you to, just to say that this is such an important topic. I want to continue with it in the next segment, um, the next part of the, of the show. And so please just hold what you're saying because I'd like to come back to it. Okay. Uh, now, um, it's time for us to take the inevitable short break. Um, this is where, so to speak, we have to pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Avelie and my guests are Joan Lesmond and Donna Shemp. We're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's doc, letter G, at m-y-m-o-n-a-m-i dot com. 
Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Joan Lesmond and Donna Shemp. Our topic is family caregiving in immigrant families. Now, we were just talking about the services that these two organizations that our guests come from provide, and I'd like to stay with that for a moment. Joan, please, would you just continue to talk about what St. Elizabeth does uh, in the way of these services uh, that you were talking about? We also um, give greater access to support systems for those individuals, and I'm really pleased that the St. Elizabeth Healthcare Foundation is fully funding the caregiver support program. Another benefit is the improved physical and emotional health for the whole family and better productivity and enhanced contribution to communities and the workforce, and it's really, really evident. We also, again, provide enhanced level of care and compassion for the individuals being cared for. And we do have a motto, and um, not only is the, the, the client our client, but the family becomes our client because caregiving is such an important issue. We really need to um, be there for the, entire, the whole family. And in evaluating that program also too, Gordon, that 92% of the people that we've seen, they say they were satisfied with the program and said that the program made a difference in their life. And again, they agreed the program met all their requested needs. So we constantly have to be innovative and work with groups to be able to maximize and give the caregiver the best experience ever. Right. Donna, please would you say more about your programs and the way you proceed on these matters? Sure. In the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Family Caregiver Alliance does do, do direct service for caregivers. And our program is probably similar and different from St. Elizabeth's. Um, what we do is that we meet with the caregivers and do a caregiver assessment to find out what the caregiver's needs are and how can we best serve that caregiver. So unlike most, quote, senior services, unquote, you know, we, our client is the caregiver, and we talk to the caregiver, and the caregiver may be more than one person. It may be a family. It may be siblings. It may be an adult child and a parent caring for a spouse. It may be any, anybody who is, again, the unpaid informal caregiver. And with that caregiver, we create a care plan to help them with not just services in the here and now, but also for long-term care planning. So, so people may need legal assistance. They may need – we do pay for respite care. We pay for legal – we pay for some short-term counseling. We teach classes and workshops to help caregivers learn both about the illnesses that they're dealing with as well as self-care so that they can learn how to take better care of themselves while caring for somebody else. Right. Now, I'm going to ask you, does the – both of you – does a time come when the immigrant family caregiver is no longer able to cope with all that family caregiving requires? And what I'm looking at here is that some of the diseases that you, you've mentioned, like Alzheimer's, for example, um, get worse. It's, it's a sad, sad fact, but that's what happens. And so there may come a time when, with the best will in the world, the person who's suffering from that condition can no longer be supported by the uh, immigrant family caregiver. Do you see that in the work you do? And what do you think are the real things that bring this kind of uh, time 
problem um, in, into to attention. Donna, first. Well, I mean, I think there comes a time for all caregivers, whether immigrant or not, where caring for someone at home might not work anymore. Um, whether there are options uh, in terms of what to do at those times often depends on finances, legal status, whether they're eligible for Medicaid in the United States and things like that. But uh, the things that can cause those kinds of problems are one of the things I mentioned first uh, before, which is that people often don't ask for help until they're in crisis. But it can also come from the ill health of the caregiver. The caregivers, particularly if it's an elderly couple taking care of each other, the caregiving spouse may become ill themselves. Um, the medical regimes may become too complicated if, you know, people need insulin or diabetic, you know, treatment and someone has to work long hours and they can't be there to give that kind of help, financial strain. And then you mentioned dementia, behavioral issues. You know, um, we had one where a mother was washing her clothes in the bathtub as if she was washing against rocks in a river and spitting on the floor as if she was in a dirt shack. And these became, you know, threats to the family, and they, they placed her, at the, you know, at those times. Um, you know, they, um, so they tend to not reach out to community support until, again, they're in crisis. Um, sometimes what we found in America is that um, an elderly um, parent or an elderly couple might return to their native lands at the end of life because they can receive better care there, it's cheaper, there might be extended family there, and they may want to die in their homeland. Yeah, that's, yeah. Um, Joan, what about the Canadian situation with immigrant family caregivers and the question of whether there comes a time when no longer are they able to cope? Uh, and I would agree because the, the statistics are really incredible because over 3 billion Canadians are caring for an elderly, chronically or dying relative at home. These are the realities. There is also the average caregiver who spends 20 hours a week caring, you know, for individuals, with 25% of caregivers spending more than 40 hours a week. And the startling thing is one in four caregivers has no help, one in four has paid help, and 61% needs more help. So what happens then, though, is sometimes the, the family themselves may break down and because of caregiver exhaustion and not be able to care. That is why it's imperative to be able to be networking and collaborating with various groups culturally and otherwise to again be proactive when that breakdown occurs to again have somewhere that that individual would, would get the support. In Ontario, though, what we've done, though, we've developed what we call the Ontario Caregiver Coalition, and the overall goal is to advance the caregiver policy initiatives to the government and other key decision makers in Ontario. And I know that this is happening in different areas across Canada. There's also a similar group nationally, which is called the Canadian Caregiver Coalition. The Ontario Caregiver Coalition Group also advocates and raises awareness around common issues for caregivers, 
and initiate activities to achieve common goals. So because of that, we are bringing the issue to the forefront so that we can also be proactive so when the breakdown happens, we do have systems in place that will support the caregiver and that will support the individual who is also the care recipient. And I think that's why a program like St. Elizabeth Healthcare Foundation supports works because, okay, we offer respite care to the family, and we may offer other things to be able to help the family member cope effectively at home. And in this way also, too, with our caregiver program, the caregiver can also take a break and go to a movie for two hours whilst we are there taking care of that patient, giving them some time away from each other. And sometimes that is what is needed but sometimes placement is required, and we work collectively with the members of the different healthcare system and with cultural groups to see what's the best strategy to support that family to cope in that very difficult time. Right. Now, what you're both talking about is, to some degree, prevention of what Donna calls the crisis and you, Joan, call the breakdown. That is by getting ahead of that particular problem by spotting it coming. Now, I'm, the question I want to ask you, what are the warning signs that that time is coming? It's going to have to be a brief one. And who should look out for them? What are the warning signs? Um, Joan first and then Donna. And this has to be a brief one, I'm afraid. For example, a personal example, my brother suffered a stroke in 2008. And, um, you know, he he visited different facilities, one when he was in crisis, the second in a rehab facility, the, the third in a continuing complex facility to regain his mobility, and now he's in a different program, where, which is called Community Connects. You could see the warning signs. The family could not deal with him coming right back home at that time because of the amount of need, the degree of need, and also as he coped to regain himself, again, it took a little bit more time. So now, because he has been in those different institutions, you could see him coping more effectively and hoping the family will be able to rebuild some of the relationship as he goes through the system to be able to see what does he need to, to cope effectively. So the signs would be like if it's someone with Alzheimer's and you know that you know, they're not coping effectively because they're losing their memory, the stove is kept on, there's a fire. We as healthcare professionals are able to support and go in and then assess and then see what is really happening and call in the appropriate supports or talk to family members who may not even be living yet. That's another challenge for the caregiver because Canada is such a vast country. (laughs) Family members live in many different areas. Donna, I'm going to interrupt you and just ask Donna to pick up on this. Um, the, The warning signs, what are the things you look for? I think, well, first of all, we know that about 50% of all caregivers are suffering clinical depression. So depression obviously would be one, lack of sleep, short temper, being isolated, having forgotten how to laugh. You know, one of my caregivers recently, I said to her, when's the last time you laughed? And she was startled, and she realized that she hadn't for a long time. All the things that are traditional stress symbols. But, you know, the other thing I think that happens in caregiving families is that when they can't do it by themselves, there is guilt, there's embarrassment, 
because of the cultural expectations. There's grief um, that is happening, yeah, that they're feeling put upon them from the outside, whether it's true or not. So when you're feeling overwhelmed with all those feelings, I think that's always the, the biggest warning sign. Right. That, that's a very key point. Um, when you see one of these warning signs, is, is it um, basically them coming to you for help or you being around and seeing things that alarm you? Which, which would you say is the, the most common of those? Well, we don't get to see people till they contact us. So, okay. You know, I mean, yeah. if they've contact, but what we find is, is that immigrant caregivers don't tend to contact us until they're in the crisis stages. And so they're not doing, like, any intermediate step where we could relieve their stress long before they get to the crisis stage. So it's a prevention challenge once more, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yes, exactly. Now, but with, with our program, though, we usually are in the home, and then in that case we assess that individual that a crisis is coming, that we need to refer them to our caregiver support program, yeah. and we intervene at that time. But because we make over 3.6 million visits a year, there are situations where individuals would have to call and ask us and say, you know what, we may need your services. But again, the staff are really trained to be able to assess whilst they're in the home and to be able to look and see, okay, what are some of the supports that individual would need if they're in a situation, in a caregiven situation, and then again, to bring in the supports needed. It could be right. a chaplain. It could be the social worker. It could be, again, helping, bringing in a volunteer who will allow the, the caregiver to go out and do some shopping, you know, for a little while. Right. Or, Joan, but, I'm, Joan, I'm sorry to do this. I'm going to have to interrupt you because we, we're coming up to another break. No I, I would just like to uh, say that um, this is Family Caregivers Unite. We're into a very important topic, which is um, family caregivers in immigrant families. And Joan Lesmond and Donna Shemp are talking about the kind of services and the approaches to the problems uh, that their two organizations are offering. Please, please stay tuned. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com you know I need someone. You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to docg at mymonami.com. That's Doc, letter G, at M-Y-M-O-N-A-M-I dot com. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley. Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite and our two guests, Joan Lesmond and Donna Shen. Our topic is family caregiving in immigrant families. Now, this question is supposing something, and that is that our two guests have been appointed by their respective governments to oversee the development of policies for immigrant family caregivers. So I'm going to ask them both, what are the things that they would propose, they would like to see, they would urge upon governments, and why? And I'm going to start with Donna, please. Um, 
For me in the United States, the first thing I would do is make medical care and long-term care a right, not a privilege. Because in America, due to lack of medical care, immigrant families are carrying a much larger burden of caring for someone who's ill. Second platform item is I would work on the immigration issue so that those who might be here in an undocumented situation still can receive basic medical care. Yeah, there's this ongoing fight in the United States about immigration. Third, I would let immigrant communities know that there is help and support available and where to go to get it. Often people won't go because they're afraid of the questions they're going to be asked and that they could be deported, and so they won't even access that which is available to them. And fourth, I would help families deal with how to integrate Western medicine with traditional healing practices to help both the care receiver and the caregiver to get the best care possible um, so that we can keep the family member in the community as long as possible. Great. Um, just a quick comment from me. Maybe we um, would learn something ourselves by looking at the traditional health, health promotion and health care practices that some of our newcomers to our countries are bringing with them. Joan, what would you do? Uh, what's your, going to be your, uh, your policy platform for immigrant family caregivers? I'd like to really echo a lot of what Dawn has said because some of the similar strategies. But I'm pleased to say, though, in the province of Ontario, we are currently working with the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care to look at caregiver strategies and look at programs caring about caregivers. So, again, my policy platform would be developing policy to support key elements and working effectively with the government to ensure there's a caregiver strategy. I would also encourage um, the government to introduce financial supports. could be tax credits, could be allowances, could be pensions, could be opting out of it. There's also maybe looking at successes and best practices and caregiver support in different areas across the world and see what can be effectively implemented here. And I would also continue to work to raise the profile of family caregivers. It is really important that we safeguard the health and well-being of family caregivers, and we also give them flexibility and availability for respite care. That would also help to minimize the financial burden placed on family caregivers, and I'd make sure that they have information, they know access to the system, to also work with their work environment to create flexible workplace environment that respects the caregiving obligations and that really supports the caregiver who works, but also be able to implement that if they do have to go to an appointment with their family member, that it's not seen as a penalty, and as you said, Donna, earlier, that it's a right. And again, research. Invest in research on family caregiving as a foundation for evidence to ensure there is evidence to help us make the decisions about really what is best for family caregiving. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm in the audience, and I'm going to ask you a question. Um, all this is going to cost money, which is fair enough. Can you point to benefits to the two societies, that is in U.S. and Canada, um, of the policies you're talking about. In other words, what are going to be the benefits, not just of the immigrant family caregivers, though those are of prime importance, of course, those people, but also to society as a whole. Donna, what's your answer to that one? Informal family caregivers provide about $3 billion worth of services to our society by caring for their loved ones. 
by supporting caregivers, we are really supporting the bottom line in our society because if those people were having to get paid care or the government was paying for their care, you know, it would, cost, it would bankrupt the country. So we need to support the caregivers so that they can continue to do what they're doing and help us financially. But on top of that, you have things like lost productivity at work because of caregivers who are struggling to balance things. You have people who have given up working in order to be a caregiver, which means they're no longer paying taxes, they're no longer paying into the health systems. That's going to affect them later when they cannot create social, get social security, and that's going to affect, again, long-term what society's going to have to pay for their care. So there's a huge financial as well as social, moral, ethical component to why it's really important to support caregivers. Right. Very good. Joan, what's your answer to that? I totally echo that because the thing is that right now um, a lot of money is being saved by informal caregiving. So if that money is invested into the system to effectively support caregivers, not only would we have a more vibrant community, working community, but we would have workplace environments that really support effectively and we create hubs and we create systems to be able to effectively support individuals. So the benefits are really, really many because what it does, it provides the appropriate support to the caregiver so that, again, the care recipient can get the best quality of care. So I think in the end, though, it's like, you know, it's like the caregiver will no longer be the sandwich in the middle, but it would be part of a care team to effectively cope with the challenges of caregiving. And we'll realize that if, they, if there is a system in place, and guess what? It's going to be more positive for the environment. Value in caregivers is really key. Having the public and political voice is really, really key. And as we expand again and strengthen the role of caregivers by investing, I think from a society perspective, it's going to be very, very beneficial. Right. Is it, and this is a quick question to both of you, um, and Joan first, is this a matter also of fairness? you see it? A matter of fairness? Yes. I, I think it's a matter of equity. Yes. Because I think, like, at St. Elizabeth Healthcare, our mission is to honor the human face of healthcare. So I think that if honoring the human case, face of healthcare, there must be equity. So I don't think, I don't see it as fairness. I see it as equitable and ensuring that the individual have the best care yet and the best support yet. I always use the saying, let's put ourselves in the place of the person. What would we like? and how would we like it? And I think if we practice with this in mind, guess what? Caregivers would have the best support ever, and the equitability would be there. And guess what? The positive impact on the family, the positive impact on the environment, and the positive impact on the mental health would also be there too. Donna, is this a question of fairness, or do you see it as something different? Well, I would echo everything Joan said, and what I would add to that is that, you know, in families, there's usually one person who is the designated caregiver, and that person is often doing a whole lot more work or has given up many more things to be the caregiver, and that they are not compensated for that, and they often pay a very high price in their own health and their own mental health. 
And so it's fairness, it's equity, it's sex role, gender, identity. You know, all of those things need to be honored. And by us not honoring it, we demean it as we have done lots of things that women do. Right. In the UK, and I don't know whether you both know this, they do pay family caregivers. Uh, it's not a huge amount of money. It's, I guess it's roughly $400 for about a 32-hour per month um, stint of, fairgiving, of, of caregiving. But it does seem to me that it speaks to things that both of you have said, and that is the honoring of, of the family caregiver by recognizing that they are, in effect, part of the healthcare system. They are providing services to healthcare. They are, in the way that you've both made clear, in effect, subsidizing it. So what, let me turn that into a question. Is that something that you would also specifically advocate for, and that is, if you like, a sort of wage for family caregivers. Donna, you take that first. Absolutely. We have actually advocated that maybe people could get Social Security payments or other things, and again in America, that they would be able to access health care if they have given up their job in order to be a caregiver. Um, And it's important, it's the most frequently asked question. We get 15,000 calls a month, and the most frequently asked question is, how do I get paid to be a caregiver? Right, right. Joan? I would absolutely agree. I think any kind of support to the caregiver is really, really critical. And in that case, then, if, if like Donna said, if the person leaves work to care for family member, income is also important. And you do not want the individual to go into poverty, and then that puts a really different impact on the family. The responsibility of caregiving, though, is not only a social one. It really is a government responsibility. It's a community responsibility. And I think individuals have to work collaboratively together to make that difference and, again, realize that caregiver burden can be a very negative impact on the whole society because people would suffer silently. But if there's an opportunity that they are able to receive support, either financial, either emotional, either physical or in any form, I think it would go a long way to have the coping ability to be really more effective. Right. Now, I've been listening to you both, and I'm going to vote for you. That is, when you stand for, <laughs> for election, you get my vote, because I think you've outlined a great deal of the policy issues, and I'm speaking as an ex-bureaucrat now, that government in our two countries and elsewhere, really have to face. And we also have to live with the point that populations are aging, and some of the diseases and conditions and medical conditions that are associated with aging require continuous care. They require people who, basically the family caregiver, to be there when everybody else has gone home. All the professionals have gone home, it's the family caregiver who's carrying on. And so, therefore, honoring them, and that may mean also providing them with training. Um, you know, on this program, we've heard um, of a mother who was providing the kind of medical uh, service to her child that normally a nurse would provide, but there was no alternative. She had to do it. She had to learn to do it. So 
providing all those sorts of support you're giving, you're providing, your organizations are providing, and this idea of honoring and recognizing their role in society, um, that is what is, I see as the role of this show. And if I can be very brief about this, I've called it Family Caregivers Unite. What I've heard from both of you is that though there are differences between the two countries, um, you've frequently said, yes, you agree with each other, yes, you see the same problems. And that means that the more we can unite and bridge across from one country to another, learn from each other, and build that kind of almost united front for family caregivers, then we will see the change that you both, in all seriousness, have put forward in a very clear manner. Now, I'm sorry to say that we have to close shortly, but I want to say thank you very much, first of all, to our listeners. And please email us with your comments and questions, which we'll be very pleased to answer. And I want to say thank you to our guests, Joan Lesmond and Donna Shemp, who shared with us um, uh, their perspective, their enthusiasms, their beliefs, their value systems, and they've pointed to changes that really are going to have to be implemented. And therefore, even if they don't stand <laughs> for election, I hope that people who are will be listening to both Joan and Donna um, about the challenges that we inevitably, all of us are going to be facing. Now, our next episode um, is something that I would ask you to um, please visit us and, and listen because we're going to be continuing with um, the whole question of what organizations do and how they provide services to the kind of groups that um, Joan and Donna have been talking about. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.